DJ said, we are in our series in the book of Acts, walking slowly through this 28-chapter book in the New Testament, and today we are going to get to Acts chapter 8. But before that, I want to remind you of something Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. He says these words, maybe you know them if you've read the book of Acts before. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now these were Jesus' final instructions to this small group of his first followers while he was still here on earth, before he had ascended to heaven after his resurrection. And so following these words, Jesus ascends to heaven, and he basically says to his first followers, hey, listen, it's your turn. Now I want you to take what you've known and heard from me and go and take it to the rest of the world. Now that said, the words that Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, they probably fell on deaf ears a little bit. Because it just didn't make sense to those first followers what Jesus was really saying, right? I mean, Jerusalem, yes. Judea, maybe. Samaria, the ends of the earth, heck no. We are not, no. That's not what we do. Now, we have the luxury of looking back on thousands of years of church history. We, get to, we have the book of Acts. We can look at what was happening They didn't have any of that. They were writing the book of Acts as they were going through that. And so we know how things turn out. We know that the message of Jesus goes well beyond the confines of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. But for those first believers, none of this really made any sense. The coming of the Messiah, Jesus, was a promise that was made in the Old Testament. Long before Jesus ever came to earth, There was the promise of this Savior, this Messiah to come, who would rescue and save God's people, Israel, from the hands of their enemies and their oppressors. And so it was believed that he would be sent by God to reestablish God's rule in Israel by becoming their king. In particular, he would set things right and he would upend the Roman Empire and the hold they had on Israel. The end goal for any good Jew was not for them to go and tell people about the Messiah, but for the Messiah to come and place them in a place of power in the world again. This was the common understanding of what would happen when the Messiah would come. This is one of the main reasons why so many Jews had a hard time believing Jesus really was the Messiah. He just wasn't talking about all the same things they believed the Messiah was supposed to be. There was nothing royal or kingly about him. He was the son of this calloused carpenter and a peasant girl. He was from nowhere, Nazareth. He had no real pedigree. And his purpose and message, it just didn't seem to line up with what most thought the Messiah's message should be. So even though Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it's likely that most of those first followers didn't really understand what that meant until Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So if you have your Bible, go to Acts chapter 8 or open up your version app and go to Acts chapter 8. We use the New Living Translation here, so if you're looking for something comparable, that's a great way to, uh, that's a great place to look first, right? Now last week, we unpacked the brutal and yet inspirational death of Stephen. 
after a long defense of his innocence, right, that he had been accused of by these people who were saying things about him, the leaders of the Jewish faith in the first century eventually stoned Stephen to death in public. It's a dramatic scene, brutal, violent, and yet at the very end of his life, Stephen takes the kingdom of God, takes heaven, and he brings it into earth as he forgives these very people. Now, up until this point, the high council, these Jewish leaders who are in charge in first century Jerusalem, are really just doing their best, though unsuccessfully, to quiet the first followers of Jesus by throwing them into jail for a couple of hours, maybe a couple of days, and then telling them to stop talking about Jesus. But as I mentioned, it's unsuccessful. They, they, they're not, it's not happening. They just release them and they go back to doing what they were doing before. But Stephen's words in Acts chapter 7, that long speech he gives, they're the last straw for the high council. Enough trying to keep the peace. They can't take it anymore. And so even after Stephen's death, they act out in violence towards those first followers of Jesus, which is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The second half of verse 1. Luke writes, A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Okay, so stop there for a second. The high council releases the dogs on the church. Enough is enough. Stephen's accusations of them, that they were being disobedient to God and working against his will, it launches them into this violent frenzy to get rid of these so-called Jesus followers. They have to go. They're saying things like, we're the temple, that the temple that we once knew, it's irrelevant in light of Jesus, that now people are the temple. They have all these weird interpretations of the Old Testament in light of Jesus. They've got to go. Now, at the center of all is Saul. And we later know Saul as Paul, one of the great apostles in the New Testament. But take note of this because in a few weeks, we're going to come back to Saul and things are going to change for Saul. But in the meantime, this violent persecution of these believers scatters them throughout the known area. In particular, Luke notes, they go where? Judea and Samaria. Interesting. Now, it's likely that many of those who were in Jerusalem were still there because they came to the festival of Pentecost, right? Early in the book of Acts, we find out there's the, the festival of Pentecost, and it's there that the apostles, the first leaders of the church, go into the streets of Jerusalem where hundreds of thousands of Jews from all over the known area have gathered to celebrate this festival, and they start telling them about Jesus in their known languages. And thousands of these people, they become believers on that day. And instead of going back home, many of them stay in Jerusalem, and the church begins to be its first formation. They begin to gather. They begin to share their resources with one another. And so you have all of these Christians that are in Jerusalem that actually live in places in Judea, maybe even beyond Samaria and further into the Roman Empire. And so it's likely that as this persecution begins to happen, a lot of them are like, I'm out. Like this, I'm, I'm, I'm going back home, right? 
Like, it is, they're ripping me from where I'm living now. I have nowhere else to go. I got to go back home. So by the end of Acts 2, we're told that these thousands of new believers, they're gathered as is, this is community. But then in the beginning of Acts 8, all of a sudden, they got to go home. They're going to get, they're, they're get thrown in prison or they might even be killed. Which is where we pick it up in verse 4. It says this, But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. So these believers that were once in Jerusalem and now are scattered into Judea all the way to Samaria, yeah, they're going back home, but they're going back home armed with something. They're not just going back home with nothing. They're going back home or to these native lands with the gospel, carrying the good news of Jesus, the places that have yet to hear about him. And in the process the instruction that Jesus gave them months earlier in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, begins to take shape. They scatter, the text says, around Judea and into Samaria. In, in particular, Luke reports Philip, who we know as one of the disciples and one of the apostles, he makes his way to Samaria. And Philip isn't mentioned much in the Gospels or even much in the book of Acts, but we know Philip has been around a while. He, like I said, was one of Jesus' disciples. He was there. He witnessed his life, his death, his resurrection. And in addition, he was there at Pentecost. He's seen this since the very beginning, since the inception of the church. Philip has been there. But again, because of the persecution in Jerusalem, he has to find his way somewhere else, and he ends up in Samaria, which is a very unlikely place for a God-fearing Jew to go to. Samaria is an unlikely place for any God-fearing Jew to end up. I mean, Samaria and Jerusalem, they have this long history, all the way back to first and second kings, just, just nasty history. And because of its shady history, Samaria and its citizens were looked down upon by Jews in Jerusalem and Judea. Samaritans were considered by them half-breeds. They were considered to be both Jew and Gentile. In other words, what happened was, as nations came and took over the area of Samaria, many of the Jews in there intermarried with those Gentile nations, and the Jews in Jerusalem looked down upon them. How could you do that? How could you be so disobedient? The Jews in Jerusalem, on the other hand, were believed to be holier because they refrained from marrying outside of their own. So there was this constant conflict between Samaria and Jerusalem, and we see sort of the tension that existed that even in Jesus' life, he goes through Samaria. He talks about the good Samaritan. There's this conflict, though, that exists within these young Jewish men and women. Of how do I handle this? And so it's very unlikely that Philip would go to Samaria intentionally, but he's there, equipped with the gospel, scattered into this place. And yet this is where it begins to take root. This is where the gospel starts to take root in amazing ways. Luke reports that because of Philip's presence, because he's scattered to Samaria, people are freed from evil spirits, they're healed, and that great joy 
comes to the city. We, we can only surmise that people come into a life-saving relationship with Jesus because Philip is scattered to Samaria. Now, before we get too excited about the progress of the church here, let's be very clear that this is a dark time for the church. Again, we can look back on it and go, man, look at how God was like working in all of this. But for them, they're literally running for their lives. People are being dragged from their homes. They're being thrown into prison. It's likely that some, just like Stephen, are losing their very lives. Though some are returning home, others are just running for shelter. They are now homeless nomads in Judea and Samaria, places they never wanted to be for many of them. And yet, God is still using it in this incredibly powerful way because not only are they fulfilling the instructions of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and they're bringing the gospel to new places, but all of this is exampling a new kind of rhythm for the church. It's a rhythm that the church lives by in order for the mission of Jesus to be fulfilled. And it's the same rhythm that we as a church in the 21st century in Phoenix, Arizona, live by as well. If we want and we desire to see the kingdom of God come near to the people in our community, then we too must live by the rhythm that God is starting to establish in the people who are a part of this new community. And the rhythm is this. The rhythm of a church is this. Gather and scatter. Gather and scatter. These are the words the Bible uses. Gather and scatter. In Acts chapter 2, we see the church gather. And, and we know from that and from church history, this was a regular practice of theirs. They got together, they worshiped, they took communion, they heard God's word, they, they listened to what God wanted for them. And now, they're in the process of scattering throughout the world. Right? They're scattering throughout the world. People of all kinds come together and they worship and they share in communion and then they go and they scatter into the worlds that they've been placed. As Stephen talks about in Acts chapter 7, we are now the temple of God. He resides in us in a special and unique way when we gather together just like we experienced this morning. You cannot duplicate this. You cannot recreate this. This is a unique experience when we come together and we gather. But then in Acts chapter 8, the church does its other task. It scatters. Though it took persecution to make it happen, who knows what might have happened if that never would have occurred. The followers of Jesus are scattered throughout the known area, carrying the gospel with them gather and scatter. It's what we do. It's who we are, right? And one without the other, well, it causes issues for the church. For instance, if we only gather, well, the gospel goes dormant. If all we ever do is get together on Sundays and we ignore that task of being the people of Jesus in the world that God has placed us with the gospel in hand, then the gospel just becomes stale and dormant. The good news functions only as a salve to the wounds of a few, and the kingdom of God is only really near to a few instead of to all. Now listen, love gathering on Sundays. 
I mean, it is fuel for the soul, right? I spend hours thinking about and praying, preparing for this moment. But I do it with the understanding, this can't be it for us. This cannot be it for us. It's only one part of that rhythm that exists within our church. And if it's all we have, the gospel would just become dormant, just become this thing that's good news for some, but not for all. And if it's only good news for some, well, then it can't be good news for anybody, right? It's hidden to the rest of the world around us. However, the flip side of this causes issues as well, right? If we only scatter and we never come together, well, the gospel loses its power. That's why I talk about you got to be here. This is important to you, your faith, and to the world around you for you to be here. Because if, if you just go into the world and you scatter to your homes and you never gather, the gospel loses power in your life. You're not going to talk about Jesus. You're not even hearing about Jesus. You're not thinking about Jesus. You're not worshiping Jesus. If we never take the time to gather with each other, the power of gospel is lost on us. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, the gathering of God's people is an incredibly powerful moment. It brings the gospel into focus. It challenges us. It encourages us. It changes us. It fuels us. If you scatter for too long, the power of the gospel will wane. So we need both. We got to gather and we got to scatter. It's how the church was set up to function. It's the vision that God had for this plan A, the church. The beginning of Acts 8 reveals that the church is at its best when it's gathering together and it's scattering into the world. Now, all that said, it isn't just enough for us to just walk into the world, okay? We, we need to scatter with purpose. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 shows that the first followers they didn't just scatter and move on with their lives and like, whatever, that was a great experience in Jerusalem. I'm just going to go back to doing what I was doing before. They had purpose in their scattering. Look again at what it says in verse 4. It says, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. They went back home. They went to the foreign lands. They didn't do it with no intents and no, purpose, no purposes. They, they had a purpose. We're going back with the good news of Jesus. And wherever I go, I want people to know about the hope that exists in him. Listen, in about 10 to 15 minutes, maybe an hour and a half, I don't know, this time of gathering is going to end. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We'll see how Jack, you know, well, I don't know how many songs he's got prepared at the end here. In about 10 to 15 minutes, we're going to scatter into our world. And you go to your neighborhood, you go to your school, you go to your grocery store, you go to your place of work, you'll go to your kids' activities, you'll go to get, you know, your family get-together. And all the while, you'll continue to be part of this rhythm of the church in your scattering. And so this morning, I don't want, to, I don't want, to leave you, I don't want you to leave empty-handed. I want to get you, give you just a few tips, if you will, things that I've seen both in Scripture and in my own experience that are helpful when we scatter, when we live into this part of the rhythm of the church and scattering into the world. Because it's easy to go back to our worlds and be like, I don't really know what I'm doing. 
well, I don't, I don't really know how to, what am I supposed to do? Like, am I just supposed to go to my workplace and like start reading Isaiah chapter 43? I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. So just a few things that hopefully are helpful for you as you consider, okay, I'm going to leave this place this morning and I'm going to go back into my world and I'm going to be equipped with how it is that I can be living into this rhythm of gathering and scattering of the church. So here are my pro tips for scattering, okay? The first one is this. Keep your eyes open for gospel opportunities. Ephesians chapter 16, verse 17 says, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. In other words, keep your head on a swivel. Like stuff is happening around you. Be aware, right? God is already at work in your world. And in most cases, like, we think, well, I got to take this gospel now, and I've got to go, and I've got to bring it to this place. I mean, theologically, the gospel is already there. We're just partnering with God and what he's already doing. And so we just need to be aware. He will provide you opportunities to bring the gospel into that place. I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to add a confession and then a challenge to you, okay? So the confession is this that I'm pretty sure I ignore gospel opportunities all the time. I do it all the time. You know, I, I have that intuition to have the conversation, and I don't do it. Or, or, or I have the intuition to ask that pointed question, and I don't do it. Or, or to give generously to the person who needs something, and I don't do it. I just, I play it as off as if the Holy Spirit doesn't actually live in me. It could just, just you know, I'm just playing tricks with myself, Right? Maybe you can relate. I'm not alone, am I? No. So my challenge to you is this, to you and, and to me. Let's act on those gospel opportunities. Ask the coworker how they're doing. Say hi. Buy some food for the homeless person. How, how bad is that going to hurt? Share your story of faith with your friend and watch how the good news comes to life in very real ways. If the Holy Spirit is in you this week, when you go and scatter into the world, it is going to prompt you in moments to go, I want you to see this. This is a gospel opportunity. Do not ignore this. And when that happens, go for it. Don't shy back and watch how God uses it. So many opportunities come and go. And I think we miss out on them. So keep your eyes open for them and go for it. Here's my second pro tip, and this is maybe the biggest thing that I can say today, the one that I have found that helps me so much. I want you to figure out how to combine what you love with who you love. Let me explain what I mean. Because I think this is where God does his best work, by the way. Here's what I mean by it. You have passions in your life, things that you love that are unique to you. And I don't think that's just by happenstance. And if you're a Christian, you also love Jesus. So what would happen if you started to combine what you love with who you love? What if you combined your love of gardening or reading or sports, music, fitness, food, movies, children, teenagers, gathering people with your love of Jesus? You know, I think one of the, the detriments that's happened within, especially the evangelical church in America, when we talk about scattering, we've sort of boxed it in. 
And we've said, here's what it looks like for you to go and scatter into the world. You need to go over to your neighbor's house and bring a plate of cookies. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. It's just sort of the model we've been given. You need to go over and give them a plate of cookies and invite them over to your house and then eat a full meal. And at the end of the meal, I want you to lead them through a prayer where they give their lives to Christ. Like you're, I don't know about you, but that sounds miserable to me. Come on. It does not sound very much fun. You know what sounds like fun to me? I'm going to show up at 10.30 p.m. on a Wednesday night at an ice, ice rink, and I'm going to play hockey with a bunch of guys that don't know Jesus, don't know what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, and I'm going to love them and talk to them and listen to them and have fun with them. Now, you tell me, which long-term is probably going to be more effective in my life? How, how, what, what do you think God desires for me? I think this is critical for us to combine what we love with who we love. It's like this like a magical you know, place where God does his best work in and through us. And you all love stuff that I don't love. You can go places I would never go. You're going to be scattered into the world in a, play, in a way that nobody else in this room ever would be. And while you're there, you get to love Jesus in the process. You get to love other people in light of your faith. That is the power of the gospel scattered in the world. And then while you're there, by the way, just be generous with what you have. Just, like, I don't know. I have never once been really generous and been like, why did I do that? Right? Like, I, be generous with your time, with your abilities, with your money. The gospel is the ultimate story of generosity. Jesus giving his life for ours. And because of that, we've been given the opportunity to express that same generosity as we scatter into the world. Be generous. God will honor that. And it has the power to change people's lives, to ask questions, to start conversations. It's amazing what can happen when we are generous in even the smallest ways. You know, for the longest time, I kind of thought, this is my own fault, but I kind of thought I wasn't able to do some of the things that I love to do because I felt like, well, there's got to be more important things out there. And don't get me wrong, sometimes there are. Sometimes there's just more important things to be done. But I've also found that it isn't in doing the things that I love that God provides the most gospel opportunities. It's there that I see God at work in ways I wouldn't otherwise see. And I think it is in doing the things that I love that I also find myself being the most generous. So today, not tomorrow, not next week, but today, I want, to, I want you to take some time and think and pray about how you can fully participate in this rhythm of the church gathering and scattering, making both a priority in your life. Take evaluation of where gospel opportunities seem to be keep popping up in your world and how you might be able to take action on them. Think through how you can combine what you love with who you love and what ways has God shaped your passions to be a presence for the gospel in the world. And consider how you could be more generous with what you have when the opportunity arises. Gather and scatter 
Church, this is who we are. This is what we do. May we do it with purpose. May we do it with intention. May we never let another gospel opportunity go by again. We're going to see that when the church does this, gather and scatter, powerful things begin to happen in the lives of people who never expected it. So I invite you to that rhythm this morning. If you've been scattered for too long, come back to the gathering. If you've been gathering, but that scattering thing, man, it just, we've been ignoring it. Hey, now's the time. Take that step. Start to think about where might God want to use me in the world that I live in. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us to such an incredible task and opportunity. We are just so grateful to be part of this history of the church gathering and scattering in the world. And even though in Acts chapter 8, that process for the church to go and to scatter was dark and hard and painful for so many, it changed and revolutionized the power of the gospel in the world. Because of that moment and because of that call to go to to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. God, everything changed. And we now, 21st century Americans, we now are the beneficiaries of the scattered church. God, you've placed an enormous call on our lives. We don't take that lightly. We ask, God, that you would fill us by your Holy Spirit. Give us the ability to see we're here at work in our world. Give us the courage and the audacity to be that person in that moment to bring the gospel either through deed or through word to those who need it most, God. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for your presence in this room this morning. Grateful for your presence in our lives personally. And God, we just ask that you would continue to move us into the world in your name.